uh, any of the above that you'd like to share with everybody else? And I don't see my go-to. Liz isn't here today. Oh, she's taking she's taking some more time. That's okay. I don't think we have any takers today, and that's all right. It just gives you more time to think about it for next week. <laughs> um, but as you know, then, we like to start off the class as well with going through and reading John's thesis, uh, which we have behind us. That's John 20, verses 30 through 31. And just a reminder that as you read through John, everything he wrote, everything he put down, gets filtered through this thesis, because he gives you the luxury of telling you why he wrote the book. And I'll let you go ahead and read that one, Bob. Yeah, so here's our thesis statement that John gives us. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. In other words, his uh, gospel. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, or the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Life in his name. Well, that brings us to our theme for this week. So, as you know, each week we've picked a theme out of this statement and let that be kind of the center of our discussion. Uh, The theme this week is the Spirit of God. And you may look at that purpose statement and say, I don't see Spirit of God written in there. But I hope by the end of today's class, anyway, they're going to see what we came to see, which is uh, the Spirit of God is this whole statement in terms of how God does his work. You're going to find it's through his Spirit at at work in you. And so that's where we'll end up at the end. Uh, But we thought we would begin by maybe talking a little bit about what does this word Spirit mean. When you read through the book of John, and those of you that have read it through start to finish, you will have noticed that there are two words that... John uses when pointing to or describing the Spirit of God. And one of those words is the word helper, or sometimes the word comforter. The Greek word for that is uh, the parakletos. And you don't have to remember this, but you will remember the image that comes to mind. When John uses this word, that word parakletos means called alongside. And so John will probably use, or when it's translated into English, the English word ends up being the word helper. But the image that should come to mind is what it means to help someone, not in the sense of just giving them a little bit of comfort and saying this is going to be okay, or helping to drop off a meal, you know, and somebody that that needs a little bit of help. This word parakletos means helper in the sense of standing right alongside somebody. So let the image come to mind where you're standing on the side of a real busy street next to a small child uh, who is going to cross this busy street with you. You don't tell the child, it's going to be okay, you're going to be great, you know, here's what you need. Now just head out. When I say go, you just go, you know. (laughs) That's not helping. Uh, What do you say to the child? You say, you stay right next to me. And that's what uh, John means, or the word that he uses to describe the Spirit of God is this helper, where God is saying, hey, you, right here next to me. This is where you stand. The other word that is used in John is the word spirit. And this is a word that we use all the time, even in English. Uh, But the word that's uh, used there in Greek is the word pneuma. And that we'll talk about in a minute brings to mind this idea of wind or breath or air and that kind of thing. Um, Hey, thanks for turning the lights back on. But we turn those off because there's this seizure uh, risk over here. And if you could just twist that. Yeah. We were going to give the disclaimer at the first of class that if anybody has <laughs> with seizures, it may be good not to sit on that side looking right here this way. 
where was I? Oh, we were talking about yeah, spirit. Yeah, the word spirit. pneuma. But let's talk about this in English for just a minute. When you hear the word spirit used, whether it's in day-to-day conversation or even here, you know, in a church setting and somebody's reading a scripture or the word spirit comes to mind, um, what do you think of? What does that word mean? Or what are the many different? Let's just talk about the many different ways in which that word can be used. And what does it mean when you hear that used, whether it's here or in other settings? Yes. Good. So spirit can be a minister. And we even hear that term, ministering spirit. Ah, oh, that's a good one. Yeah. So spirit means entity. Without a body. A, non, a non-physical essence, so to speak. Sort of floating. Yeah. Yeah, good. I mean, what else? Breath. Breath. Yeah, and it's interesting that, that you would say the word spirit brings to mind this word breath because that's the root word. When you think of spire, spirit, it's a Latinized form, but it actually comes from the same word where, at least in the medical setting, you know, if I put a stethoscope on your back, I would say, okay, inspire. I wouldn't say that. I would say, okay, give me a quick breath, right? But what we mean by that is inspire means to take air in. And then you know what it means when you push air out? You expire. It's expiration. It doesn't just mean you die. We have inspiration and expiration. So you hear that term spirit. You're exactly right. What else? What other uh, connotations of this? Yeah. So the and that's a great image, isn't it? That the spirit has a moving just guide you and move you. Force. Which yeah. Yeah, without you really knowing what's happening or what's going on. Yeah, it's just this force that's moving. Um which yeah. So if I say, Man, that there's a guy with a lot of spirit or that woman man, she's got a lot of spirit. What do I mean by that? Yeah, yeah. Enthusiasm. passion. So I'm referring to something more than just the attitude the person has, but it's, it's like it's... Or like when you hear people say, you know, the American spirit. Oh, uh, like, that's like, good. What do they mean by that? What do they mean by that? <laughs> I think it's generally more, you know, kind of like passion and those types of things. You're talking about like characteristics of somebody, yeah. you know, what's their desires or kind of uh, what are their intentions that drive them? All these other, yeah, all these ways to maybe describe a person or a nation or a thing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and we'll end up getting there. In fact, that's a good segue into asking this question. How is this word spirit? When we talk about spirit in Scripture, how does this word end up being used? We've we already talked a little bit about, just like in English, the word can have these different connotations. And what we find in Scripture is that the word spirit can either just refer to a weather event, 
Because it's this word, pneuma, or we'll talk about it in a minute, the word in Hebrew, that just means wind. So sometimes in Scripture you'll hear, an east wind blew. And it's this word, this east spirit came and blew. It's a weather event. Sometimes it's referring to an attitude or a personality or, 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 you know, these characteristics of a person. They have a lot of spirit, or the spirit within this person is what distinguishes them from other people. Uh, And then other times it's referring to an actual person. In other words, somebody, almost this would be this person's name. And this is where we we drop into Scripture and say, when you run into the term Holy Spirit, you're not talking about just a disembodied force or just a general attitude of someone. You're talking about him. And so let's see where we can can fight. Where, Where are we first introduced to the Spirit in Scripture? Um, so for those who are familiar with, you know, the New Testament, obviously you see the word spirit come up all the time. Um, it just, it inundates. Uh, if you do like a word search and it'll highlight, I mean, every page will have this word spirit on it. Um, but then you have to ask yourself, did the spirit just start in the New Testament? Is this where it comes? Did Jesus bring it? Um, and the answer is no. Uh, if you go back to your Old Testament, uh, the first place you're ever going to see it is on the very first page in the very first verses uh, of the of the Bible. And so you go to Genesis. I was going to say, what were you going to say? <laughs> yeah, the spirit over the waters. So Genesis 1, 1 through 2. Uh, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was a formless and desolate emptiness, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And this word spirit is this Hebrew word called ruach, and I don't say it with enough spit. You really have to pull from the back of your throat. It's ruach. (laughs) Ruach. Um, But this is the very first time you get the uh, mention of the Spirit, and it certainly is not the last. Uh, there's hundreds of references in the Old Testament to the Spirit. Uh, but interestingly enough, when you, you know, we often think of creation as, oh, well, God made everything. Uh, but when you go through the account of Genesis, you realize it's the Spirit that's doing all this work. The Spirit is hovering over the waters. Um, and this word, as we mentioned before, like Duma, it doesn't just mean this, this invisible force, but it also refers to breath, to wind, to energy. And so as God is speaking things into existence, what is he using when he speaks? He's using his breath. He's using the spirit to create these things. And so the word ruach there, and this is such an important point, it brings all of those connotations together, doesn't it? Correct, yes. Well, and it, yeah, and so they had one word for, for this idea of the Holy Spirit, um, as well as breath and wind. So they didn't have separate words for those. Um, also, you, you see Ruach used a lot to refer to your mind and what you think, uh, the invisible energy in, in your body that animates you. Um, all these things are the exact same word. So it's uh, a force, can be measured, can't be seen. My, I told you the story of my dad. <laughs> uh, I didn't realize until, he's an aerospace engineer, and I, I didn't realize until college that that means my dad's a rocket scientist. <laughs> you know, and, and Sometimes we don't learn that until we're a little bit older, but uh, my dad, very smart guy. Uh, who, is, who is an aerospace engineer, has worked on designing airplanes and missiles and all kinds of things in aerospace. And, and he was visiting here one time, and his grandkids asked him, what is it that you do for work? And you know what his answer was? He said, working in wind tunnels and all of this, he says, I've spent my whole life studying a force that I can measure, but I cannot see. 
And that was a description of aerospace. And that approximates so well to what this word, when you run into it in Scripture, means. Ruach, the Spirit of God. It's a force that can be measured, felt, but it cannot be seen. Yes, and one of the one of the fun ways to experience it is, uh, uh, as, as we've learned through different things, you find out is it's it's nice to take it out of the meta- the metaphorical sense and put it into reality. So when you think of your own body, what is one of the things that you primarily need all the time that you can't go more than a few minutes without? Or, or then we would consider you dead. Yeah. You expire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's your breath. It's the one thing. You can go a time without water. You can go a time without food. You can go a time without sleep. But you can't go very long without breath. Um, And you're meant to catch that. It's more than just a physical uh, happening that's going on. You're meant to, as as an ancient Hebrew writer would have thought, that is the power of God uh, moving you and animating you. That's why the same word for wind. I mean, you you look outside. Would anything even move or animate without the wind? The trees would stand still, the leaves wouldn't blow, you know, the grass wouldn't flow, nothing would be animated without it. Um, and then you, you take this idea that as I breathe, God is empowering me and animating me. As I see the winds blow, you know, God is moving energy around the world and making the seasons happen. And then you take all of that and realize that at every given moment, it's God's spirit which is keeping the world into existence. It wasn't set in place at the beginning and then let loose. It's every single moment God empowers us to stay alive because of his Ruach. Use your illustration. I think that's a good one. Oh, which one was that? The breathing. breathing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, one of the ones, the first time I was introduced to this idea, he goes, okay, well, take your hand, hold it up, and put it over your mouth. And now breathe in, and then breathe out. What did you feel? Air. Was that air warmer or cooler than when you took it in? warmer so you put energy into that air you added something to it and that's that's the idea of ruach moving in your body it keeps you alive in the physical sense um, and then as we'll see here shortly in much more greater yeah, sense and so there is the metaphor that uh, that you're going to run into in scripture mike has a question Yeah, and yeah. that's that's one of the places we run into this, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. so we had we have a lot of different references. Uh, as you go through the Old Testament, you're going to find the Spirit throughout in many different forms. And Ezekiel 37 is a fascinating one because uh, yeah, the Valley of the Dry Bones. It's Ezekiel 37, uh, one through ten, and it, this word ruach is mentioned several times in that short little phrase because uh, the Spirit of the Lord takes Ezekiel to this place, and Spirit is the ruach of the Lord. And then he tells Ezekiel, prophesy over these bones so that they'll get breath, which again is this word ruach being said. Um, And then as you go through it, then the four winds come and fill these people with the breath, and the wind is ruach. So I can only imagine as you read this in ancient Hebrew, it's just you keep seeing this word all over again. Uh, And it's meant to talk about, because that whole section is referring to their coming out of exile, because they were dead in their exile, and then God gives them new bodies, new muscles, new tendons, all through the power of his Ruach, filling them and giving them life. Yeah, that's good. Did you have a...
Yeah, and what a great way to say that, that uh, if I could just summarize that comment, it's that your eyes may not see what God is doing, but he's given us the ability to perceive it. And I think that's why this word wind ends up being used so much as the metaphor to say, that's what the Spirit of God is like. You don't see where the wind's coming from, you don't know where it's going, but you can absolutely perceive what's going on because of its, because of its force. Uh, where are some other places in the Old Testament? Well, I mean, and speaking to that same idea, uh, you go through when the Israelites uh, were led out of slavery, when they left Egypt, and they come to the Red Sea, and God parts it by using a strong east wind that blows all night long. Um, and so you're meant to see, they didn't see the wind, you know, you can't perceive it, but you can definitely see the effects of it uh, that happened. Uh, and then similar to like we talked about before when, you know, God was leading the Israelites in the wilderness, the fire in the day and the smoke during, or sorry, fire at night, smoke during the day. Uh, this was God's personal presence through the Spirit leading and guiding them. Uh, and then you get, uh, which if you look in, and it's not even, I couldn't find it in uh, Exodus, but I found it in Nehemiah where they refer to that whole incident that was happening was because God was giving them his Spirit uh, to lead them and to guide them. Um, and then you also find a lot of instances, uh, one of the most, uh, actually the most references I found was in relation to uh, the Spirit filling people, uh, individuals, for a certain cause or a certain purpose. And one of the, one of the most interesting ones, or one of the first times it occurs is Exodus 31, uh, 1 through 5, where you get this uh, story about uh, Bezalel, who is filled with uh, the Ruach of Elohim, so the Spirit of God, so that he's able to work wonders and craft things uh, in the building of the tabernacle. It said he's given gifts of insight into woodworking, stone cutting, you know, working with precious gems, all of these things so that they can make this beautiful, uh, ornate tent, uh, tabernacle that they build for the house of God that they go to meet him in. And it said he was given this ability through the Spirit. Um, and then just uh, uh, then in Numbers 11, uh, that's a fascinating one, too, where you have Moses, and he's, God says, you know, gather 70 of the elders together, um, and I'm going to take part of the spirit that I gave you, and I'm going to put it on them as well, um, which starts to complicate uh, this image of the spirit, because it's less direct of, here God's giving someone his spirit, and now it's almost like God's taking a portion from somebody, giving partly to others, um, so not as clear-cut, not as following a formula, but definitely giving you more insight into how the Spirit's working. And if you have verse 29, do you want to read that one? Yeah, we've got to show that one. So the, again, the story here is that Moses, overwhelmed with work, imagine leading a million people you know, out of Egypt. They're all complaining he's having to settle disputes. And so God says, listen, you've got to share the work here. And so he tells Moses, appoint these 70 others, and that's what Tim was saying, is that God took a bit of the spirit that he had given to Moses and then takes some of that and splits it up among these 70 but not all 70 were there uh, yeah. it turns out there were two guys what were their names uh, I want to say yeah Eldad and Medad <laughs> those are great they rhyme they, they, they didn't show up for the meeting they were still back in the camp and when God took the spirit of Moses and split it up among the 70 every single one of those 70 started prophesying even the people that didn't show up for the meeting. So Edad and Medad are out there in camp somewhere, and suddenly they start prophesying. Well, Joshua gets upset about this, and he comes, and he says to Moses, hey, you need to tell those guys out there, they didn't show up for the meeting, they need to stop prophesying. And listen to what Moses says. Moses said to Joshua, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Isn't that a beautiful prayer? And Moses' prayer was, wow, 
would that God would come and allow his spirit to be poured out on everyone. And that's exactly what we see plays out over the rest of the Old Testament. Yeah, because in some other notable ones, I mean, most of the judges, you're told God puts his spirit on them, which, if you know any of the judges, kind of makes you laugh a little bit because you think of, you know, people like Samson. I mean, Samson was a jerk. He was not a nice guy. He did a lot of bad things. Um, But God chose this man, and he used him, and he put his spirit on him. And again, that picture, now with the Moses and the 70 elders, and then now with this whole idea of the spirit working in creation, it starts to really complicate uh, how you view the spirit. Um, which I think is meant to draw you in and make you ponder and wonder and think of these things. What does this really mean? Um, Because then you keep going on and you see the kings, uh, Saul and David, uh, they're specifically mentioned that the Spirit rushes upon them as they're anointed as the kings of Israel um, because God was filling them and being with them. But notably, you probably recall, uh, especially with Saul, the Spirit doesn't stay with him. He loses it uh, because he disobeys. Um, And so you see then this continual theme, especially like through the prophets, they get filled with the Spirit. Ezekiel has tons of instances uh, where he's interacting with it, where God's moving him, like in the dry bones. Um, Isaiah as well. Um, But continually through the Old Testament, you don't see anyone that is perpetually nonstop filled with the Spirit. It's almost like it comes and goes almost, you know. It's, It's spotty in their lives, but not because the Spirit's inconsistent or unreliable, but because the people are. Now, the people aren't able to like live up to the standard of fully committing themselves to the Spirit, which is, is a theme you then hone in on as you get to Jesus, because this is exactly what Jesus was able to do. How often are we, do we hear about, you know, Jesus is able to fully obey the Father, to fully do the will of him, because he's filled with the Spirit to its completion, uh, unlike his predecessors in the Old Testament. Can I read Nehemiah? Is this a good time to jump yeah, in with that? Yeah, let's go there. Because the, this point, I think, is so important, that there's not a formula that people use throughout the Old Testament to, to get the Holy Spirit. It's not like if you do X, Y, and Z, suddenly you'll get the Spirit, and if you do A, B, and C, you get to keep the Spirit. That's not what you see. You see God coming in and doing what God wants to be done through people. And they're not always good people. No. <laughs> they're terrible people. And uh, in Nehemiah, we have a, a picture here of the Israelites, because they had disobeyed, they were taken into exile. They come back in waves after being in Babylon. And on one of these times when they come back, all the people gather around, they read the law of God again. And then they say this prayer. And you actually can read this prayer in Nehemiah. And I'm just going to read you an excerpt from it. Nehemiah nine eighteen, And they say in the midst of this prayer, even... When they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you out of Egypt, which was a lie, and had committed great blasphemies, you, Yahweh, in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. And they would not only say this prayer on that return back from Babylon, this would be and would inform a ceremony that they would continue to celebrate uh, because it was mentioned in the Torah earlier. They would celebrate their rescue from Egypt and how God continually was faithful to them even though they were unfaithful to God. And that became the Feast of Tabernacles. We talked about that a few weeks back, where they would all, for one week, go camping together, set up the tents, and they would stay in the tent and celebrate this Feast of Tabernacles and remember how God was faithful to them and how he provided food for their mouth and drink 
for their for their thirst. And then there would be this promise from Joel, right? The I should pull that one up. Yeah, Joel two uh, twenty eight through twenty nine. And for those uh, uh, you know familiar with the day of Pentecost, this is exactly the quote that Peter says. Uh, when he's confessing to the Israelites, hey, you just killed you just killed the Messiah. And he quotes this, uh, 28 through 29, and mine might probably be a different version. Uh, but I have, it will come about that this, that I will pour out my spirit, my ruach, on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams. Your young men will see visions. And even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And to say this in light of their knowledge of how the Spirit had been working on the select few that it had filled, um, and keeping in mind when they say this word Spirit, it entails all the creative force, the invisible presence of of Yahweh filling uh, all of existence. And then now they're being told this is going to come inside of us. Um, I think at the time it would have been a little bewildering, a little confusing, which then you see in the Gospels that they didn't understand what was happening um, which is, is all the more reason why we, sh- why we get to kind of rejoice in this fact that it's here today and that that very promise has been coming about since uh, Pentecost, yeah. since the glorification of Jesus. Now, I imagine you're sitting there thinking, I thought this was a class about John. <laughs> we are spending time in the Old Testament. But do you, do you have a, an idea now of what this word spirit means, the idea of breath and wind, and do you have a sense of what the people who heard John read for the first time would have, ha- would have had in mind when they see the word spirit. Do you at least have a taste of that? So let's, let's now go to John and see where does this word spirit show up with this meaning? Well, I mean, you're going to see it multiple times. Obviously, uh, John mentions it, John the Baptist, very first chapter, when he talks about, uh, he calls back the baptism of Jesus. And he says, hey, I saw the Spirit coming down as a dove, landing upon him. Uh, and then, you know, as you start reading through John, you realize that the entire fulfillment of the Spirit was was manifested into Jesus. Uh, just as he's equal with the Father, he was equal with the Spirit all in one. And now all of that you know, historical context of what Ruach is, is now embodied in the person of Jesus. And then you go on and you see in John 3, he's having this dialogue with Nicodemus. And one of the things he says, uh, referring to, is that you have to be born of the Spirit. You know, you have to be recreated by the power of the Spirit to fully enter the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, Nicodemus doesn't have a clue what he's talking about, uh, thinking <laughs> he has to go back into his mother's womb. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you continue on, you know, John 4, he's talking with the Samaritan woman. And he mentions, you know, in that, in that discourse about how you're going to one day worship in spirit and in truth. And I think it's, it's, that can be a confusing phrase and, and difficulty to understand, but it's not two things, you know, spirit and then truth. Uh, spirit and truth are combined into one uh, because that's what Jesus was. He was the fulfillment of the spirit and the prophecy all together into one thing because the spirit is truth. That's all it can speak and that's all it can share. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, you're moving on to, and then John 6, uh, 63, he specifically says it is the spirit, uh, and then in the Greek text, the pneuma that gives life, and that's why uh, the flesh profits you no benefit. And so referring to, again, the idea of everything that the spirit can give you, that's what gives you real life. It's not your flesh, it's not, you know, the world around you that you see, but it's that invisible, empowering energy of the spirit from the Father, from the Son, that gives you true life and true meaning. Yeah. And then, yeah, moving into John 7. Yeah, John 7. In fact, we should probably connect these. Is that As you're reading through John, you're going to see this word spirit show up, not in every single chapter, but in almost every chapter. And many of those that, 
that Tim's already mentioned. But then you come to chapter 7, and there's this really interesting reference. John 7, verse uh, 37. I'll put it on the screen here for you. And here, we have to take you back to this ceremony that they had uh, instituted based on what was said in the Torah. The Torah said that every year, at this prescribed time, Everybody goes out, you live in tents, and you celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, what they added to that, in about 200 years before Jesus was here incarnate on the earth, they added a few things to that ceremony, you know, to make it more than just going, staying in the tents. And one of the things they added was a ceremony of water. We talked a few weeks ago about the ceremony of lights. Do you remember that? Where during the Feast of Tabernacles, they would climb these big poles and light the lights. And it was in that setting that Jesus says, hey, I am the light of the world. Well, uh, there's something else that Jesus says at that time, and that's what you read here in John 7. And it was based on this other practice during the uh, Feast of Tabernacles in which two priests would walk with this procession down to the Pool of Siloam, which some of you will recognize is where the blind man ends up washing his eyes. They would go down to the Pool of Siloam, and they would take this big flagon of water. They would fill it with water. And there would be another one, uh, a big chalice or bowl filled with wine. And then the two priests would walk with these two bowls up from the Pool of Siloam, up this long staircase, back up to the temple, surrounded by this huge parade, and trumpets would be blowing, and people would be walking with these palm branches and waving these figs, and they would be singing. When they got up to the temple, they would be singing what was called the Hallel, or the praise. And that was Psalm 113 through 118. You can read that whole series of songs. And they would sing as they came up to the temple. And they would come to the end of that Psalm 118, which says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His, you'll remember this word, his steadfast love, his chesed, his agape, it endures forever. And the crowd would cheer. And they would all shake their branches. And then all would fall silent as the priest took this bowl of water and would pour it out onto, in a special way, onto the altar, and it would run down. And they would be told this symbolizes God giving life to the world. He is pouring life. He fulfills our thirst, gives life to the world. And then they would take that bowl of wine and pour it over the altar as a symbol, saying this is God doing what he said in Joel he would do, pouring his spirit out on all people. And so they would, they would have that ceremony. And then we're told here in John 7, now you'll know what John brings to mind when he says, on the last day of the feast, he's talking about that very feast, the great day, after the water had been poured and the wine had been poured out, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this, now John breaks back in as the commentator. He says, now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus had not been glorified. Now do you see how the whole event comes together and what you're meant to have in mind? And he makes a point here that the spirit had not yet been poured out. Jesus is giving an invitation, and John extends that invitation to you. And Jesus says, if anybody's thirsty, let him come to me. And the people that come to him, those who believe, will receive the the Spirit of God. It will become in them like the spring of water. But when does that show up? When does the Spirit come? 
Well, then you get to uh, go to John 20, uh, verses 21 and 22, and you get this kind of uh, odd odd action that happens. Uh, this is after Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he's now uh, appearing to his disciples once again. And he, he says this, uh, I don't have it in front of me, you can read that one, but yeah. it's, yeah. When, when, he's, when he <laughs> said this, uh, or he actually says to them, peace be with you, or shalom. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad, that's an understatement, when they saw the Lord alive again. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Again, shalom. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This is the great commission. Even as the Father has sent me, so am I sending you. And then listen to what he says next. And when he had said this, Jesus breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. You know, and that context is, is interesting because when you, if you go back and look, and, and this is at least where I went with this, um, the on them part of that phrase isn't in the original Greek, so it's, it's put in there by your translators to help you sort of understand the, uh, the sentence better. But I think when you, when you take this and if you root it into um, the Old Testament and how they would have seen the Spirit of God, I can't help but picture this as the resurrected Jesus he can't help but breathe out the Spirit. It is so now enveloped into his identity of who he is as the resurrected Savior who comes to bring life into the world. That just, And he's still mortal to some degree, to the extent I don't fully understand, but yet he still breathes. And his breath is not just oxygen and nitrogen and the chemicals in the air, but it's his, his very essence is breathing in and out the Spirit of God all the time. Um, because you get, at least I did, you get confused because you read this and you're like, wait a minute, this, is, this, seems, this seems incorrect, this seems inconsistent because then these men aren't fully filled with the Spirit until the day of Pentecost. Um, but I don't think, it's not a disconnect. If anything, I think it just reminds you of this is a promise, this is what's to come. And, and we talked a little bit yesterday about um, not only is this story written as a, as a historical account, sort of, of what happened, but it's also written to the reader. Uh, you're meant to be engaged in this story. And so receive the Holy Spirit isn't just being said to these men. It's being said to everyone who reads this account that you're supposed to receive the Holy Spirit, especially what he's going to say in just a moment of why he even wrote this book um, so that you would believe and that so you would have life in his name. And you get that life through the Spirit. And so one of the things you catch in John, and this was really one of the things we wanted to make sure you catch as you're reading through John, is you are only introduced to what the Spirit of God is going to do, and you'll read about that through the rest of your New Testament, and you're introduced to what the Spirit of God is doing even today. You're just given an introduction, and what you see here in John is that Jesus, just like God had done throughout the Old Testament, picking places and people through whom to work, Jesus does that with the disciples, and he breathes on them, and they receive the Spirit of God, and he tells them, I'm giving you the Spirit as a helper. We talked about that word earlier. Now, this takes a lot more time than we have left, but if you read John 14 through 16, you're given a crash course, Cliff Notes version, of what does the Spirit do in the lives of people once God has given the Spirit. And one of the things you learn there is that the Spirit of God, working through his disciples, convicts the world of three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. And we won't get into now into what all each of those things mean. The main take-home point is that the Spirit of God 
that was working through and actually was Jesus in this incarnate form when Jesus leaves God's work doesn't leave and Jesus tells the disciples when I go you will receive this helper who will continue this work and you'll end up doing and exponentially more and reaching exponentially more people but who's doing the work it's God doing the work through those people who Jesus says believe in me and choose to follow me and you're introduced to that here in in the book of John and we're going to end up running out of time but usually <laughs> because That's okay. Well, and one of the also things you'll find as you go through 14 through 16 is you could there's a clear ex, or you know um uh, demonstration that the disciples didn't understand. I mean, that's clear throughout the book of John. There's, there's misunderstanding, there's ironies, uh, but they didn't know what was happening. Like, why do you have to leave? Why can't you stay? What's going on? And Jesus emphatically tells them, it is for your betterment that I go so that I can then send the Spirit so that he can help guide and instruct and teach you these things. Not teach you new things, uh, but to fill in those gaps of your understanding, to give you all the insights of wisdom so that you can fully understand who the Messiah is. And I, I believe wholeheartedly that that promise is still available to everyone today. Um, you know, as you read the scriptures, as you study, as you pray, as you do your own research, um, the Spirit will guide you into the knowledge of Jesus. That wasn't just a unique thing given to the apostles. That was given to any follower of Jesus, that he will lead you into the truth. Because it's not a matter of how much you know or how much you know, academia you can do, but it's are you taking steps in that direction? Are you following Jesus? Are you moving that way? And the Spirit will guide and be that invisible force, which I think pushes you all the more uh, to re- a understanding and a revelation of who Jesus is. Well, the, uh, the pouring out of the Spirit is always an overwhelming thing. And I understand that just even talking about this topic can seem like, whoa, we just put our mouth up to a fire hose taking all of this in. Uh, but let's spend the last few minutes just saying, asking the question, so what? Uh, this is what the Old Testament says about the Spirit of God. Here's what John says about the Spirit of God. What's the application? So what? Um, I think it's important to realize that as you, because I, I struggled with this for a little bit between, well, why didn't he just do this from the beginning? Why did he, you know, take time to only like sporadically give the Spirit to some people to be kind of, you know, vague in other areas? Why wait until the glorification of Jesus? And in my simplistic mind, and it's by no means without fault or flaw, um, the way that I kind of make sense of it is that clearly something happened in the garden where humanity just fell on their face horribly. Uh, We rejected God. We chose what was right in our own sight. And that created this sever, this divide, which had to be rectified. It had to be corrected. And as you go through the Old Testament, then the spirit is able to work in some people when they choose. You'll notice too, and I had this misunderstanding as a child, when someone's filled with the spirit, it's not mind control. They are not taken over. Their faculties are not removed. Um, Because we didn't have time today to talk on it, but a human being, you have your own Ruach separate from the Holy Spirit of God's Ruach, and they get to intermesh, they get to work together. So as someone is influenced by the Spirit of God, they get to choose if they want to follow that influence. They get to decide for themselves. They're not forced to. Um, But then the Old Testament, these people weren't able to live up to that standard. But then here enters Jesus, who fully demonstrates what it's like to live in the Spirit, who shows what true humanity looks like. And then his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross opens a doorway for all of humanity, for all of our mortal selves to follow in his footsteps and then receive the Spirit perpetually. Um, And that Spirit is what gives you life. 
Um, it's, it's really so hard for me to wrap my mind around, but Jesus, he resurrected in the flesh. I don't know how he could put his flesh in me, but I can make more sense of how he can put his spirit in me. And the same spirit which comes from the Father comes from the Son. And what we didn't touch on is every time they mention the spirit, he tells you multiple times where it comes from. It comes from the Father. It comes from the Son. It's not something you create or come up with. It doesn't come from the trees or the mountains, uh, but it comes from the all-creating you know, force, which is God the Father. Um, and I think it's meant to be encouraging. And you're going to see it because uh, we did a quick word search, and spirit occurs um, dramatically more times in the New, the New Testament than it does in the Old. I mean, they hit on it almost every page, even if not directly, um, indirectly they will. Um, and th- you're meant to have this as a, as a foothold in your Christian walk. Um, and I will admit the spirit is, is one of the hardest topics, I think, to understand, to get your mind around. I think the Father and the Son are a little more, make a little more intuitive sense, uh, but the spirit is just as important. Um, it needs to be understood so you can really uh, follow Jesus to your uttermost. Yeah, yeah. And so let's let's because the bell's about to ring, we're going to end there. Can I let, maybe just end with a psalm? I think that's a good place, even though this isn't in John. Um, you'll remember David, the King David, in whom was the Spirit of God. He blew it, totally blew it, in an adulterous affair and a murderous, you know, attempt to uh, to cover that over. Uh, but he was still called a man after God's own heart. And part of it was because you see the heart of somebody who goes back to God and repents. And that's what you read in Psalm 50, uh, 51. And in the midst of Psalm 51, this is where David says to God, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right ruach within me. Cast me not from your presence and take not your holy ruach or your holy spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. What David craved in that prayer is what you are introduced to in this Gospel of John. Is what it's like for God's spirit to be given with your spirit, as you said really well. And for you to know what that's like to not have God's spirit taken from you. And you're introduced to that in John when Jesus through those disciples says as the father has sent me now I have a job for you and I'm not leaving you alone I will send the helper the paraclete the one who's standing right with you who will be walking with you so that in your day and in your time you continue this great work that God is doing to make the world right again yeah yes Stephen Yeah. 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 Right. And if I can clarify, uh, Stephen just makes the point there to say, you are not allowed, and can I just extend it from the apostles? You are not allowed to say, hey, I get the same work given to me that God gave to this person. In other words, God's spirit is the one doing his work. And God gave very specific work to the apostles. And we get to see more of that in Acts. Tons of things God does through those apostles. Um, but there, can, there, there is a tendency to say, I don't really have the spirit until I can do that. That is not the message at all. The message that you should get, though, is that same work that was being done through the apostles, that same spirit of God, 
is what is offered to you so that in your place and in your time with what God does have for you to do, you are empowered to do that. Is that a good way to summarize that? Good. All right. Thank you. Well, that's the second bell. Ah. Well, uh, to get the full message, we (laughs) encourage you, open up the Gospel of John and read it. Verse 1 all the way through chapter 21. And may God bless you as you uh, read his word and attempt to put what you read there into practice. All right. Let's prepare now for worship.